Hello, welcome to another edition, episode number nine of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. Today we're diving into our first edition of History of Hitting, which should be a lot of fun. I'm Jim, and joining me as always is my former hitting coach, renowned hitting instructor and evaluator, friend and co-host, Jake Epstein. Jake, how are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? Well, doing well. You know, this past week we had the Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Uh, it, obviously, it was shortened from what it was for many, many years. But uh, before we dive into today's topic, I want to talk a little bit about that draft. Um, and you, once upon a time, were drafted back in the 90s. A lot of dreams were kind of fulfilled this week. What was that like for you? I want to hear some, some of your stories uh, leading up to the draft and the day that you were drafted. Um, well, <laughs> I was surrounded by greatness. Um, so it was, it was much less eventful than, than nowadays. So I, I played high school baseball and, and, uh, you know, I guess we, it was travel baseball back then, um, with Eric Chavez, who, you know, was an all-star third baseman for the A's and the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. In addition to a, another guy named Eric Munson, who, went on to USC he didn't sign that year he went to USC and became I think an all-american and, and was a first round draft pick a few years later and then there was me so uh, who was a 30 something if I'm not mistaken you know round draft pick so it was awesome don't get me wrong like it was it was really cool to hear from area scouts you know about and I played played on different scout teams and um, I was a real late bloomer so I knew college had to be in my forecast because yeah. I grew I think I grew four inches and put on 35 pounds from the time I graduated to the time I was, you know, a junior in college. So um, very exciting times. Nothing like the hoopla today. Even Eric, that was uh, the cool part about Eric was uh, Eric Chavez was, you know, we went to a high school called Mount Carmel High School and Billy Bean, uh, the ace general manager, played at Mount Carmel High School and was a first rounder. Well, Bean ended up drafting Chavez that year because he was the GM of the A's. So that part of it was really cool. It was kind of like this local community, you know, outreach. You know, everyone kind of came together. So that was neat. But yeah, I mean, there was no. Uh, I think there was internet in '96. I'm not real <laughs> sure. There yeah, definitely yeah. wasn't a phone with a camera or social media then. No. There was there was there was internet, but there it was certainly in its uh, in its infancy. Infancy, yeah. yeah. There are three players, and I, I wanted to kind of discuss with you just to see uh, which guys you really liked. Uh, the organization uh, that that you currently work for, they drafted a guy that I really liked uh, in Garrett Mitchell, and uh, for me, Garrett Mitchell was kind of a sleeper in this draft. And there are other guys drafted later that I really liked too that I thought were also sleepers. But I kind of got a chuckle a little bit when when the Brewers, I saw his name called by the Brewers, and uh, knowing that you know his swing was vetted through you, and and knowing that we're on the same page and kind of cut from the same cloth on a lot of things, and and seeing Garrett Mitchell drafted by the Brewers uh, kind of gave me a smile, but the one comp I have for him, and I want to see what you think about this. I know he's an outfielder, but but his swing, a lot of things that he does, a lot of the elements he brings uh, to the field and his tools, he reminds me of Sean Green from back mm. in the day. A little bit, uh, maybe a stretch. I know Sean Green was a first baseman, and Garrett Mitchell could end up being a first baseman um, later in his career, but. It's kind of a stre- kind of a stretch, but that was kind of a comp for for what I had for him. I liked Garrett Mitchell a lot. I liked Ed Howard a lot. Uh, I still think he has uh, some development to, to some, some development time there with uh, trying to um, get more ground force with his swing and and kind of get a little bit more torque in his swing as well and get those hips to snap. But I, I think his athleticism is very very um, comparable to tr- like a Trey Turner type um, mm-hmm. at shortstop, good range, good arm, and then of course Austin Mar- Martin with um, with us with the Blue Jays. Um, some would say, and you've said this too, that he was arguably the best player in the draft. So there were a lot of good players in this draft that I really liked, um, and I think those are the three, at least in the first round, position player wise, that that really uh, that really stood out to me. And and you know this too very well. I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big guy. I'm not big on drafting kids out of high school, position players out of high school. I think drafting a 21-year-old first round, second round out of college with all that experience and development time at a really good program. I mean, Nick Gonzalez, for example, uh, New Mexico State, not a huge program, but nevertheless still a good college program, uh, really helps your organization, helps maximize 
uh, getting the most benefit and, and cost-effective way to develop those players and get them to the major league level. Now, in, in Ed Howard's case with the Cubs, I think he's the outlier here because I think he's just a tremendous athlete who can grow into a Tim Beckham um, or or uh, a Trey Turner type at short. Plus, I think he has a really nice swing and, and you know he has good bat lag and, and whatnot. Anyway, we can break this down all day, but those are the three guys that really you know stuck out to me. Yeah, I, I think there's there's always good talent. I, I, I kind of echo you know what you say about you know college and amateur I, I think it's tough of you know it's tough taking a flyer on a, on a high school kid where you may not know all the makeup you know um and maybe in the third or fourth round or even the second or third round okay you know we this guy's an, an elite athlete but you look back at you know overall one ones you know recently and um you know i'm trying to think of high school guys you know moniac was one uh that was a one one and the other kid from from Aliso viejo why can't i think of it lewis it was a royce lewis royce last lewis. was that last no two years, two ago, years ago before mize um you know high school guys that um you know they're plotting through the minor leagues they're they're not tearing it up they're 20 years old now 21 years old you know they're they're trying to hit 260 in the minor leagues it's it's tough um yeah. When you get a guy like Austin Martin, I mean, we played him last year when I was at Mizzou, and uh, he he was the best hitter that, that I saw in the conference. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean there's some great hitters in that conference. Bladey was in that conference. We had Camp Meisner on our team. Zimmerman's on our team. Um, Kirsten, we, we you know we we faced him, and boy, does he have just leading. Um, but Austin Martin, all around, I been hard pressed not to take him one one and no disrespect to Torkelson because I don't I don't know him and I never saw him play but you know he's he's a big guy he's a first baseman um you know a guy like Martin can play the outfield he can run he can play the infield he can play second he can play third the dude can hit he can find some guys find barrels he finds barrels and he's got enough power so um I thought the Blue Jays uh did quite well I thought they they skated in there and, and, and got themselves a really quality ball player at number four yeah. or number, no, number five. It was after that, yeah, right? Number, number five, five, yeah. What was for Lacey? I thought he could have been number one overall too, that guy. Yeah. I think I was telling you before we got on that he, you could plug him in right away. Yeah. Like, that's not a guy that needs, I mean, he needs a change up, but he's got electric stuff and electric spin rates. He could be in your bullpen, at, you know, I don't know about this year, but, you know, next year for sure he could be in there. Um, and then back to, to Mitchell, yeah. I mean, the whole Sean Green comp is kind of funny because uh, I, I know Sean Green from when I was a kid. My dad worked with him um, when, he was, uh, when he was a high school player at, I think, Tustin. And uh, when I was younger, I got to play all the pro guys or – uh, minor league guys would come back in the offseason. There was like a little kind of instructional league mm-hmm. in Southern California and the scout for the Blue Jays let me come out and hang out with all those guys. So I was sure. like a high school freshman. Mm-hmm. These guys were like just, you know, recent draft picks, minor leaguers at the time and I used to go catch their bullpens, right? I was catch like bullpens all day for them and, you know, kind of hang out. I think they gave me a bat once, you know. I felt pretty cool about that. So, you know, Sean Green, I, I know his swing like the back of my hand. Um, I kind of wish uh, Mitchell had his lower body. Um, okay. I would say Sean Green had electric hips, um, yeah. electric lower body, and probably the best arm I ever saw in person um, as well. So he was a right fielder when he came up, when he was yeah. younger, before he moved to first base. Um, and that dude, he was a freak athlete. And I think Mitchell is too. Mitchell can, you know, he's maybe like a four, four and a half tool player, right? He just needs to get into his legs more. You know, he's got some lower body work to increase his ground force and increase his, his energy level to create power. But um, I gave him really good um, grades because I liked, I liked his swing plane. I really did. And, again, I don't know what a lot of these guys do other than hit. You know, that's kind of all I see. And a lot of times I don't see, you know, how, you know, uh, these guys I do, but not everybody, how, how fast they're swinging the bat. Yeah. But – I know how efficient they're swinging the bat, and he is very, very efficient. Yeah. Uh, one more thing with Austin Martin. I, I, I think uh, the, the, this is why, and I'm not shilling for the organization, but this is why it's such a good pick because if he's in the major leagues in two years, you, that's a that's a pretty <laughs> pretty solid lineup right there because right sure you're, you're in the, pretty much in the middle of I think maybe you maybe a year or, or a year before are when guys like Bo Bichette and, and Vlad Jr. and Kevin Biggio and these guys coming up are away from arbitration. So you have what I'm trying to say is that you have you'll have Austin Martin inserted into that lineup at a time when 
everybody's starting to really come into their own and they're right in the middle of that team control and they're not about to hit the cusp of free agency that's another reason as to why I think college players and again going back to maximizing those profits so to speak drafting those college players with so much talent that could be inserted in a year or two into the starting lineup a la you know Dansby Swanson he went to Vanderbilt um, is more beneficial than drafting a high school player like you mentioned with Mithmoniac or you know, and Ed Howard, they have a ton of ta- they have a ton of talent. Don't get me wrong, but again, it's the high school thing as a, from a position standpoint that kind of scares me off a little bit. It just takes time, right? I mean, it's, it's going to take three years of good competition. Yeah, um, and quite honestly, like people don't realize how competitive a college fall is. And how hard those guys work yeah. um, to compete and to get better, and how many hours they're on the field. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of minor leaguers that don't do a whole lot. From, I mean, you have some instructs, right, which is great, and or maybe a fall league if you're you're a prospect. But you know, from for college, like those guys are grinding it out, getting bigger and stronger, mm-hmm. and hitting and fielding. You know, pretty much every single day that they're on campus. You know, yeah. aside from a couple months in the summer when they're usually playing summer ball. So. You know, they're they are getting reps and they are getting better and they're maturing and you know it's it's uh, you, do you pay for that right? You know, I mean, do you do you pay for that service or do you let the college develop those players and in hopes that you know they they get they get better and, and more more comfortable you know as a player? So I don't know. I mean, yeah, you look at uh, I don't know why I'm blanking. Is it uh, Nick uh, Gonzalez? Is that his name? Nick, Nick Gonzalez. You know, from Mexico right? State. I mean, from New Mexico. Like, wow. Yeah. That dude just turned into a different guy in three years. Yeah, yeah so amazing I mean, walk on to to first rounder. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome stuff. Yeah, again, it's that it's that you don't you never know what could happen in those three years. How much you're going to grow? I mean, there's so many there's so many variables that that go along with it. Anyway, let's let's dive into our topic today. We can go on all day about the uh, yeah. Major League Baseball draft and these prospects, but our topic today, a history of hitting. I know you're very excited about talking about this. This is part 1. We're going to do part 2 next week. Today we're going to be covering from the start of the 19th century, so 1900 to 1990. There's a, a good amount of stuff we can cover there. Next week we're going to cover the last 30 years of hitting because of everything that's evolved in within the game of baseball and, and how hitting has changed with technology and, and data and whatnot. So we'll talk about that next week, but we're going to start here with the uh, beginning of the 19th century up to 1990. And we'll start with the first 20 years, 1900 to uh, 1920. Uh, and this is the era, and I know you're a history buff, so you know this. I have a lot of notes here. Um, on all these eras, but this is kind of this 20-year period where you heard teams like the New York Giants, the Philadelphia Athletics. Um, those type of teams were throughout Major League Baseball. Some, some statistics going looking back on it, home runs per game were .2, so very minuscule. There weren't many home runs. The overall league batting average was two fifty five. About four runs were scored um, per game, and about 8.5 hits per game. Now, the most home runs hit during that time from 1900 to 1920, uh, the most home runs that were hit in one season uh, were by Babe Ruth, and it was actually uh, 11 home runs the first time he led the league in home runs. So there were a lot of guys who were slap hitters, uh, Ty Cobb, Harry Davis, Tim Jordan. I mean, you may you may remember those names. They led the league in hitting, certainly not home runs. Um, Cobb led the league in hitting nine times. So this was sort of a period where uh, there was it, much different from what it is now. We didn't have any power. We just had a, a guys who. I mean, you could argue maybe it was it was the game of baseball being played as as purest based off the statistics. Uh, you know, emulation is is a big part of how we learn with with hitting and with baseball, and 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 so you see the waves of of hitting and ideals, you know, through through baseball's history because it takes time for change and it takes time for emulation, and you know when guys first started playing, it was uh, it was like they were playing pepper, right? They had these yeah. giant bats that never broke the ball didn't have a cork center with a rubber cover on it yeah. right it was like a big pillow they were hitting and what were they trying to do they were they were you know the strike zone was gigantic you know they're just trying to like get hits you know they weren't worried about 
putting them in the seats because there were no seats, right? If there were, they were made of wood. You know, they were bleachers in the outfield, and usually the stands or the fans were standing out there. So, you know, different game. Not a lot of fences back then either when the game first started, you know, around the yeah. turn of the century. So, you know, as the stadiums came in, you know, life was a little different. I guess the the one history – I mean, it's so funny to hear those stats that you threw out. is like, incredible. Um, and, and, and was – I'm trying to think what year that was. Ruth hit. Was that like 1919? That, that was 19. Let me look here if I can read my own stupid handwriting. That was 1918. 1918. Was 1918. Okay. So yeah, I, yeah, that was when he, it, he was starting to come up, and and he was probably a pitcher, right? He so, was a, both. I mean, a, he was a position he, player and pitcher. Yeah. So you know, pulling double duty, but uh, yeah, I remember, you know. Uh, Ted Williams telling my dad so my dad told me that you know he learned how to you know Williams watched you know tried to copy everything that Ruth did like that was kind of his deal and Ruth told him I don't know what year it was you know Ruth had, had, had retired and he you know was shortly before his death he said um, you know I copy the great hitters you want to learn what the great hitters do copy them he said I copied Shoeless Joe mm-hmm. oh. you know, Shoeless Joe Jackson okay. was really the first guy he felt that you know was a guy that you know, had a slugging percentage, you, you know, really hit the ball. And, and when you look back, Ty Cobb could have hit 20 home runs if he had just a different approach, you know, and it was it was how the game was played. It was, you know, you hate to say it was how guys made money because they didn't make money back then. But, you know, how were how you going to be successful, yeah. right? Like, you know, what was your, you know, Tony Gwynn was kind of in between. So I just skipped, you know, so many decades. But, you know, Tony Gwynn was that guy that was, Kind of stuck in the in the late '90s, right? When guys, you know, McGuire and Sosa and Juan Gonzalez and guys that maybe had some supplemental help, you know. But he was stuck in that, you know, being a singles hitter, and he didn't get paid like those other guys, right? He told that story towards the end of his. He couldn't change, but maybe if he would have come up ten years later, Gwynn may have been a thirty-five to forty home run hitter because he had the ability to do that. He had the ability to do anything he wanted to. And, and I think that would have been the case for the era of, you know, the, 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 19, the teens or the, the, even the 1920s. Yeah. So you think that Tony Gwynn could have been a 30 to 40 home run guy? Yeah, he, no, no if doubt. If he came up a little bit earlier? What was, if what, he had to do, all he had to do was have a different approach. Okay. I mean, his approach yeah. was, I'm going to take what they give me, they're going to throw me away, I'm going to flip it the other way. And so what do pitchers think about? Oh, if I throw him a ball in and he turns on it, then that could drive in a run if he hits a double or if he hits a home run. But if I throw him a fastball middle away, I know he's just going to flick it into left field. There, there's no fear, yeah. right? There, there's no fear. Even though Gwynn was the best hitter in that lineup, you know, Greg Vaughn and, you know, or Ken Caminiti yeah. were the guys that people feared because those guys can actually drive in runs. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Did the, did the ballpark that they played in at the time, Qualcomm, did that have anything to do with it? That was a big ballpark back in the day. Good recall. Yeah, yeah now it, it was, I don't think it was huge, but, I mean, Vaughn hit 40-something home runs or something. Yeah, it's true. Kevin Itty hit 30-something home runs. So, uh, yeah, you could hit balls. Now, the you know, it's, yeah, you get the damp air at night, you know, but uh, it was it was smaller than Petco. You could It was a much better park than when they moved into Petco. Oh, sure, sure. In the beginning, because Petco was closer to the water, and it was huge, and you know, since then they've kind of retrofitted that guy. Yeah, Father's Day is right around the corner. Actually, it's this Sunday, and if you don't know what to get your father, well, the Dunning Blue Jays, the Advanced Day affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays, have you covered with their Jay Shop. Father's Day be here soon, and we've got you covered with twenty-five percent off all men's apparel and caps. Use the promo code Dad twenty-five. Again, the promo code. Dad at 25 and surprise your dad with new Blue Jays gear. For more information, log on to DunningBlueJays.com. Again, DunningBlueJays.com, the Advanced Day affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays. Visit the online Jay shop and get your Father's Day apparel today. Well, good stuff. Uh, so we move on to the next era, if you will. And this was, uh, I, I, I spread this out a little bit. This was 1920 to 1945. Mm-hmm. And we saw at this time, just based off statistics and some old school, really old video, uh, more power, more hits. We saw about 10 hits per game for 
for each game that was played that year. 0.49 home runs, so the power went up a little bit. Uh, the fences, there were still pretty big ballparks. The, the old Yankee Stadium, it was that was very big, but there were more mm-hmm. there were more fences. Um, and also, there was uh, the team batting average that year combined in the league was 289. So the home runs were going mm-hmm. up, the power was going up, the hits were number was going up and the batting average number was also ticking and climbing upwards as well we had guys in that era like a jimmy fox lou garrick babe ruth was playing during that time in fact babe ruth led uh the league in home runs uh nine times you mentioned the bigger bats though earlier um a couple of minutes ago this is the time when they were really using heavy bats and that's why one of the reasons i think we've spoken about this before on previous episodes where babe ruth started uh with his feet closed and uh, he would have that big hitch and the hands drop and that big stride. A lot of that, correct me if I'm wrong, was to generate that power through the barrel because the bat was so heavy. But you know, you you get enough speed there with within the bat quickness, and you make contact. The ball's going to go a long way. They were giant. They're giant bats, you know, and and they were. You could hit a ball way further back then. I mean, if you were using those bats back then with the balls now. I mean, Mantle would have hit balls, you know, into uh, Long Island, for crying out loud. Like, I mean, it's just there's so much mass. So, you know, when you when you this we're going to jump history a little bit, you know, and kind of go back and forth here. But, um, you know, going with that, look, we have we have big bats. And if you look at old timers, they had big strides. Right. So we have we have big bats. We have small people. Mm hmm. I mean, Ruth wasn't a big, large man like Aaron Judge. Like he's not even close, or Stanton. Okay, I mean, I yeah, it's not. Man. It's not comparable. They're not really comparable they're athletes. Not, they're not comparable yeah. athletes. Yeah. Like I don't even know who Ruth would would compare to nowadays. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't you know, I mean, that. he was an athlete. Don't get me wrong. He was probably a scratch golfer too. He did everything great, but you know, he didn't spend time in the weight room and he, he wasn't swinging a bat. He didn't have the bat speed. I bet his average bat speed was well below what any major league player has now. Okay. But he had to do things to get that going because he wasn't a specimen. Mm -hmm. And so you had all these players that grew up swinging big bats and they weren't very big kids, you know, or they, maybe they were big kids, but they weren't swinging ultralight bats. Right. Yeah. So they developed this big rhythm. You know, you look at Mantle used to have a really big stride, you know, especially from the right side. Um, they had big moves. And then you all of a sudden you go to college players, kind of when I played, and then more after, like in the early 2000s, right, where bats were really light. Or even in the 90s, they weren't as high-powered, but they were really light. Like you could use a drop five, right? There were no yeah. regulations. So all of a sudden guys had no strides right they had very small strides very little strides it was all about getting your foot down because all you had to do was find a barrel you didn't have to swing hard you just had to find a barrel and then all of a sudden there was this transition to bb core and all these high school kids are like oh my gosh this is the worst bat ever and they started using it to prepare for college and it was like using wood or maybe not even as good as wood and all of a sudden now the rhythm and strides come back so when you look at when you look at baseball, there's this there's this big stride, you know, era which we're talking about 20s to you know 50s, and then there's like a smaller stride gap that goes through kind of the 90s and, and maybe early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, now all the big strides and big rhythms are back, you know, like Josh Donaldson and Bautista and yeah. pretty much every Latin American ball player that I scout. You know, they all have this pretty good leg kick and pretty good rhythm well i feel like babe ruth didn't have a leg kick though it was more of just a long very long stride. just a long step yeah. yeah but so anything that gains ground i guess you know is going to create more force that's why pitchers don't have small steps right right, right. <laughs> that's why that's why pitchers don't do a no stride technique they don't stop at toe touch and then start again right they're right. building that rhythm they're going you know downhill so to speak because they're building all that energy to come out of their hand. And hitters really have to do the same exact thing. And this was a time period, too. I don't want to miss out on this name, best hitter of all time. Ted Williams was starting to come into his prime as well. I was just throwing out some names out there. What do you make, though, the pitch speed um, back then obviously wasn't what it was today. Uh, Does that have any variables or anything like that in terms of of the the numbers back then? Or is it 
what does that, does it have to do with anything? I mean, people always say, well, you know, Babe, oh, Ruth, yeah. could, Babe Ruth couldn't hit in today's game. Wow. I don't know. I don't know yeah, Babe Ruth could hit any time, yeah. but he probably would have to make adjustments. You know, you are you get used to whatever you get used to. Yeah. If everybody was throwing 90, he's going to be used to 90. If everybody's throwing 100, then he'd be used to that. I, I was talking with somebody yesterday about, you know, everybody throws hard now. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were in the SEC last year, and I'd prepare prepare reports, right? And we're like, okay, we're going in to play Arkansas, and they got this guy who throws 93 to start. And then you get in their bullpen, and it goes to like 96, 97, a couple guys. Okay. Well, I never saw that when I was in college. Yeah. I mean, I saw a couple guys, 92 maybe. Baylor had a couple guys. A&M had a couple guys. Um, but it's like, come on. We're seeing 94 to 97 every single day, and the hitter's – 19-year-old, 18-year-old hitter walks up there and he's like, okay, I'm used to this. Like, he, he, sure. he, he didn't care. Yeah. And I think that's that's how baseball works. Now, you have to also be able to, you know, we use machines a lot now to, you know, help players with velocity and to help them kind of get game ready. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no way Ruth could have that kind of leg kick off of a machine, right? So he could use yeah. a machine to, you know, get his vision right and, and kind of see the speed, but he couldn't take those moves. So, he would have to adjust, yeah. um, you know. And what we also don't know is pit- pitcher, or we do know, but what we don't realize is, you know, it's a, it's a different game. Like that pitcher, you know, he he threw nine innings, yeah. so he may have been throwing ninety when the game started, but he was probably throwing eighty by the time it ended. You right. know, today right. a guy throws five innings, you know, max effort, and then, or you know, maybe not max effort, but then they bring in four relievers that are max effort, you know, throwing in the high nineties with nasty stuff. Yeah, it's just a different ball game. Yeah, five innings. 80 pitches done where that right. era, it was nine innings 150 plus pitches and then you and then you pitch <laughs> three days later sometimes it's amazing and no commercial breaks and no no right no commercial breaks. the games were a lot quicker that's one thing i noticed too by the way comparing the game in the last 20 years compared to back then and, and even in the 70s and 80s that there were a lot of two and a half hour games rather than three plus hour games absolutely yeah All right, we'll take a break. Coming up, we're going to talk about uh, 1945 to 1969, that era, and also what's kind of described as the dead ball era as well, 1970 to 1990. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the lab and the schedule that that is being offered currently. I got this email earlier in the week, and I think it's very vital for your business to share um, about how both indoor and outdoor baseball and softball activities are going on right now. Uh, you've changed things up, though, a little bit. Um, there's some pre-scheduled clinics, but you're allowing your create-your-own groups, which I think is, is kind of cool. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, if you have a group of buddies that, that want to train together, whether it's, you know, infield defense or, or hitting or both, um, I think it's always more fun when you get guys on the same team to compete. You know, one of the, the ideas of when we created the lab was I wanted to create an environment that was their home. It was their... You know, it was the players' Division One program, you know, or Division Two program, or whatever. You know, it's their home where they can go in and get their work done, and they can they can compete with each other, and we can prep them for competition. That's kind of how it's been set up. In addition to, hey, we'll, we'll we give a lot of lessons too to work on mechanical stuff. But in terms of you know our monthly membership, we want to test guys. You know, we want want them to be game ready. That's our goal. Is is not to look good in the on-deck circle. We want guys to perform, you know, when they get in the white line. So, yeah, bring your own group is just, it's been fun because guys have three or four friends. We can all train together. We can do some home run derbies, hitting competitions, you know, throwing some nasty breaking balls, whatever, and, and have them compete with one another. Yeah, there's back-to-baseball uh, clinics that are available. The Sandlot on Turf, that's available. That was fun. $20, yep. $20 for two hours. I mean, you can't beat that deal. No, it's so cool, and it's it's fun. It's like, hey, let's get out here <laughs> enjoying the game. Like, yeah. it doesn't always have to be structured. You know, you go out, where do you want to play? You want to play left? You want to play short? Boom. You know, we have a beautiful complex to, to be able to let kids go out and play. Um, and we don't have to worry about the giant dog on the other side of the fence, you know, <laughs> if somebody hits a home run. Right, right. Very good. I like the Connect Sandlot movie connection. It took me a, se- <laughs> it took me a second. I guess, I don't know. Good stuff. That's right. So it's the uh, LabVCS. Uh, log on uh, LabVCS.com for more information and to schedule your group uh, today. Very good. 
All right, let's get back to the show here. New episodes available every Monday, 9 a.m., wherever you get, you get your podcast. We appreciate um, appreciate everybody listening. And be sure to email the podcast, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. That is jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. We thank, thank you again for listening. And be sure to uh, follow us on our social media channels. I'm at Jim Tara on Twitter. Jake is at Epstein Hitting on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm also at Jim Tara on Instagram as well. All right, let's get back to history of hitting here, part one. We'll do part two next week. But uh, we've already covered the beginning of the 19th century, 1900 to 1920, and 1920 to 1945. So now we go to 1945 to 1969. And I don't know. Before I, I kind of dive into some some notes and statistics that I that I made here, this was at, uh, at the time um, when World War II was was going on, and uh, it was one of the biggest wars uh, that that ever took place, I think, in in this country's history and in the world's history. Um, but those years, looking back on it, I, I always I can, I remember in my head vividly. 19, the 1900 to 1945, I guess, and I, for whatever reason, I guess reading up on it, I, whatever. I remember mm-hmm. 1970 to 1990, and of course 1990 to present day, very vividly. I lived through a big chunk of that and still do. But for whatever reason, this time, 1945 to 1969, I, I sometimes it, it's like lost years in my head. I, I, nothing, I can't seem to connect um with that era and i don't understand why do you feel the same way was it the war was it uh the game evolving what i don't know what it was but it was just an era where and there was it was a good era don't get me wrong a lot of new things were happening mm-hmm. and and starting to come into play but i it's just hard for me to to really nail down that era as as something i could really point back to and remember yeah you know i i remember you know i i the war was over, you know, and it yeah. was uh, booming, right? The country was, mm-hmm. was, you know, it wasn't in fear anymore. The economy was going crazy. There was the GI Bill, you know, people were getting houses and, yep. uh, you know, the, the revolution was, was kind of on. And, and I think I remember my dad telling me, you know, he moved to, he was, he was born, right, in 1943. So he moved to, to L.A. around 1952, 53, mm-hmm. And from New York, you know, like coast to coast. And he said he got to L.A. and he said it was the greatest place in the world to grow up. 1950s, like Hollywood, L.A. was, it was the weather, the people, the movie stars. Like he's like, it was the greatest place on earth, you know. And and I think if there was a time I could go back and live, I think the 1950s would be, we'd be pretty cool in the 60s. So just watch Mad Men. That's kind of a fun show to, you know, bring in that. (laughs) <laughs> the 60s the late 50s and 60s but um yeah in terms of baseball uh, you know it it was i mean you had you know the yankees right i mean just dominating you know were yeah. dominating in the, in the 50s and then they went really cold you know in the, in the later 60s but yeah it, it was a, a a kind of a gap for for baseball you know aside from that you had you know once you got into the the later 60s you know all of a sudden pitching started to really really dominate the game you know and was it because relievers were starting to come in a little bit more often you know you had guys um you know just off the top of my head like a you know raleigh fingers all of a sudden you know starts cruising in in the late 60s you know with with stuff and he would throw you know his saves would be a you know two or three innings it wasn't like a three out kind of deal Mm -hmm. but that's you know the game started to change a little bit you had bob gibson you know getting ready to kind of roll in in the late 60s and dominating and um astroturf maybe just made stuff was astroturf going on in the mid 60s or was that more more so the 70s yeah yeah there was still some of these um more pure ballparks i guess but the grass there was still the old yankee stadium so not 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 yet yeah. Not yet. And actually, I, I do have well, so I do have some statistics that kind of back that yeah. up as well. So um, I'm glad you asked that. Phil Cavaretta, by the way, led the league in home runs or in hitting, I should say, one year. Stan Musial, uh, Musial, yeah, Musial, geez. Stan Musial, see, it's a blank spot. I came and say Stan Musial, one of the best players of all time's name, right? Stan Musial, Hank Greenberg, he led the league in home runs one year with 44, actually, in 1946. So those are some of the uh, type of players that were playing uh, during that era. Um, home runs were uh, slightly ticked up a little bit from .49 from 1920 to 1945 to Point eight home runs per game, uh, each game that was played, and um, little over four hits per game. Uh, 
So the number, certainly the home run number, went up a little bit. And and during this time too, it was also we were seeing a different type of players, a different type of athlete come into the game as well. Roberto Clemente, Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, who um, was arguably arguably one of the best athletes of all time, five sport uh, five sport athlete at UCLA for God's sakes. Um, so we saw some different types of 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 athletes who were guys who weren't just baseball players. They were baseball players who can literally do it all, but then they can go and um, play golf and be successful or go, uh, you know, play, shoot hoops, play one-on-one and also be successful. So the, I think the athleticism was also starting to, to trend up as well. And Stan Musial too. I mean, he was part, he's part of that group also. You know, and, 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 you know, if you think about the other sports that were around that baseball was king, Right, yeah. baseball was that was the American you know pastime yeah. <laughs> was baseball. Yeah, that's different now. So, what athletes did you get? You got the best athletes, yeah. right? And you know, obviously, football and you know basketball were were there, but it wasn't what it is today. And and now, you know, with athletes, I mean, imagine if LeBron James decided to play baseball as a kid, you know, instead of basketball. Sure. Like he made that decision. He was good at basketball, but maybe basketball players didn't make his. It wasn't uh, there wasn't as much limelight for basketball players, you know, as there were for baseball. Maybe he's like, I want to be a baseball player, you know. I'm on TV. I can make, you know, fifteen million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can do that. And I think back in the in the fifties and sixties and and seventies, baseball was where it's at. So you're gonna get guys that are freak athletes that maybe. You know, it was a a, a a tight end or somebody like that. That now all of a sudden, instead of you know running you know running out patterns you know he's playing right field like vlad guerrero you know senior just hosing people out at the plate and can run a little bit and can hit so yeah um you know definitely it was it wasn't i obviously it's always been a skilled sport but now kids and players are so focused on one sport and and mastering one sport you know whether it's the baseball players we train here in yeah. Texas around the country or it's somebody that's going to a football quarterback camp or yeah. a lineman camp or whatever it might be on you know, basketball camps it really it, it's become very um very one-dimensional and I, I wish kids would play multiple sports for a little bit longer at least in high school yeah I, I personally I hate it I played three sports in high school and I, I don't think it develops yes baseball is a, a special skill type sport I've always said that that you can make the argument basketball players are the best athletes you know on the planet, mm-hmm. but baseball and hockey players are the best skilled athletes. Uh, but I think you know again it goes back to I guess parents and, and this is fine, but parents thinking their kids are going to go pro at nine years old and just focusing on that one sport. That's not a good approach because those other sports can also help develop that athleticism you're going going to need in baseball. And I think it also. Um, uh, you know, like uh, take wrestling for example, uh, that helps build your believe it or not, helps build your athleticism, especially for baseball. Also, yeah, I, and and I, I've actually had a, a pretty good handful of players that wrestle. Yeah, that's interesting. You say that. Um, it's just it's important to be an athlete. I don't you know I don't care. If, I mean, even if you're playing pickup games, right? That's fine. I remember we were in college and we shouldn't have been doing this, but you know, it was like, we had a kind of an evening off, you know, over spring break, we didn't have a game. Yeah. And, uh, we, you know, we just had like a morning practice and we all went to the rec center and played basketball, which is probably stupid in case, you know, you get, you get hurt, but that's what we did. Like it was fun. And you're out there and you're like, wow, this dude can play. Yeah. You know, you, you had no idea, you knew he was a great outfielder, but now all of a sudden you watch this guy on the court and you're like, oh man, this guy could, Probably could have done anything you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing that in college, actually. I would do that with uh, a couple of teammates, or I'd do that with a couple of roommate friends of mine, still friends to this day. Uh, one of my uh, good good friends, uh, who was a roommate, he um, he played basketball in high school, loved it. We would always just go to the court and at night and go play, you know, either one-on-one or do whatever. I mean, shoot, I'm, I'm still down to play one-on-one with anybody at this this current day. So, All right, I, anybody, well, it's on, then. If anybody wants to challenge me, anything. Actually, <laughs> ping pong, pool, one on one basketball. I'll do it. I'll, I'll... Any, anything where you can compete is good. Yeah, right? I, lo- I love that, competing. That brings out the juices. I, that's another thing, too, though. And we joke about it, but in all seriousness, that's another thing, too, that kids have to learn. They have to learn to compete. 
And that's something that I think is missing. Maybe you see it more because you're, you know, you teach kids of all ages and, and young men as well. But uh, you and, and you're starting to see it with some pro guys. They need to learn how to compete every single day and want to win every single day. And that's why you see some guys get drafted higher than others. Quite honestly, like there's some guys you give the ball to, and they're gonna they want to rip your face off on, yeah. on the mound. Yeah. You know, or they get in the box, and it's like you can't teach that. Yeah, like there's 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 desire there, and I see it. You know, yesterday was a perfect example. You know, at the lab because we had we had uh, three different. We had a really really young group, right? Of uh, the like the nine year olds, yeah. and then we had the kind of the middle school guys come in, and then we had the high school guys, and it was like the little guys. We we're doing you know competition at home run derby, and you know we set parameters on the hit tracks, right? Like. Yeah. We'll give you a boost because you're nine years old, right, to hit during home run derby. But you can't hit a ball over 35 degrees because at your age, if you hit a ball over 35 degrees, that you know it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And so one kid hit a ball like 40 degrees and went out for a home run, and he was done. He's like, he was upset. Yeah. Come on, I can't. You know, I just hit a home run. He's like, okay, and, and he was in the championship round. He's like, all right, I I quit. I don't need to hit anymore. Yeah. And it was like we had to have a little talk, you know, right. about that. When then all of a sudden you get to the older kids and they're like, I want in there, I want in there now, and I'm not giving an inch. Yeah. And that's what we have to try to get our kids to to feel. We have to put them in situations like that more often than not. You, know, you can't do it 10 times a year. Okay, this is an important game, everyone. Well, that just increases pressure. But if you can put them in that environment to make them mentally tough yeah. and, and make them want to win and want to succeed, well, all of a sudden it is going to show up in the games. I don't know if you remember, you probably do, Bill Robinson, former major leader. Yeah. Well, when I was, about, I think, about 11, maybe 12 years old, uh, we were doing a weekly camp, I guess, in the cage with him. And I remember um, I was not taking very good swings. And I didn't know why, and I, I, I got upset because I was you know, still, even to this day, a perfectionist. And I remember he got upset with me and said, oh, you can't do that. And I, look, I remember as an 11-year-old kid, I'll never forget this, I looked at him and I said, shut up and pitch to me. 11-year-old kid. Yeah, 11-year-old kid saying, shut up and pitch to me. That's how competitive, though, I was back in the day. I didn't want to quit. I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to compete. And I think that's not the, it's not the best approach. Um, if, my kid, if my kid did it, I'd probably chuckle and then probably say you shouldn't do that but uh, it, it, it illustrates you to your point you're such, though, a, you're such a nice kid I would have smacked you right in the head and uh, I would have grabbed you by the back of the neck you know what <laughs> put you in the car <laughs> let me just but here's the here's the, here's the my point though you don't see kids doing they just quit you don't see kids doing that anymore right. I'd rather have right. my personally I'd rather have my approach of right. shut up and pitch let me figure this out because I want to hit line right. drives and I want to compete rather than mm, I quit Right. That's, that's, that's no, not going right to get it. you anything. That's, that's, uh, no, you're, you're done in life when that happens. I mean, gosh. And, and, <laughs> and I think <laughs> that's sort of one good story. Of the, that's the story of the day. But I think um, and I think at times it's permeating in, throughout, throughout farm systems as well where guys are being coddled and they're not understanding, hey, go out there and compete every day and try to win every day. But, that's right. You know. And that's different nowadays. I think that, yeah. that there's a little bit more emphasis on that when I think 10 years ago there wasn't. You just went to the minor leagues, you showed up at the park, you did it for yourself, you know, you tried to get a couple hits, you didn't really care what anybody else is doing. But I think, you know, now the, 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 field, the field managers and the, you know, the farm directors are trying to instill a little bit of competitiveness yeah. with each and every game so that when guys do get brought up they're they're ready for that. Yeah, that that's my that would be if I was a farm director that would be my approach and, I, and every coach that was hired, every manager, uh, hitting coordinator, pitching court, it would all be about yes, developing guys but about winning. We have to win. Mm-hmm. They have to learn how to Find win. Find a way. Find a way to win because if they don't and get to the major league level being accustomed to losing, they'll never develop as leaders at the major league level and they'll never, no, they'll never understand how to actually win over a 162-game uh, time period. Also during this era, 1945 to 1969, strikeouts started to rise as well. Um, uh, from 1945 to 1958, uh, the strikeouts per game, 4.38. That, that uh, they broke the threshold of four strikeouts per game in 1952, <laughs> and they broke the threshold of five in 1959. So strikeouts per game really started to rise. Actually, it was uh, uh, about 5.1 uh, in 1959. Um, batting average also dropped um, 
it was 260 in 1945, and then in 1969 it dropped to 248. So just some other numbers to kind yeah. of add a little bit of color and, and context there. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting to look at those numbers versus today's game. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that is insane. Five strikeouts a game. Like, yeah. No wonder it was fast. There were right. probably three pitch at bats. You know, guys filling up the zone, guys trying not to strike out, right? Yeah. Swinging early in the count, putting it in play, rolling over. Yeah. Well, all right, get them next time. So do you think that era mirrors sort of what we're in now in the game of baseball with the power that's up and the strikeouts are also up as well? Um, I Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think I think pitching still still dominated, at least, you know, once the 60s, the early 60s hit, pitching really dominated. Yeah. Um, I just think there were, you know, I don't know, were there there better arms? There were different. There must have been different. And I don't know the history of pitching in, in this decade as much, but or that era. But you know, there must have been something on the pitching side. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't any physical adjustments like in 1970, right, or 1969. They sure. made it, they they made a physical adjustments to the mound. Um, but right. there must okay. have been something where the pitchers the pitchers got ahead, right? Whether it was velocity whether it was maybe the you know a, a certain changing speeds more maybe they weren't throwing as long maybe all of a sudden the average outing was you know 120 pitches instead of 140 pitches or 100 pit you know i i'm not real sure but there was probably something in there because there were there were definitely great hitters yeah in that era and we had great pitchers right we had what we had Drysdale you know we yeah. had uh Koufax was in that era we had Gibson in that era we had Jim Palmer was would be in that era at yeah. least in the the end of it so i mean there were some there were some really good arms mixed in there as well but um yeah i'm not real sure what what that jump would be in that era maybe one of our viewers can can write in and let us know. Yeah, or yeah, if you, if you do know, please feel free to email us Jimbo Podcast Twenty One at uh, at gmail dot com. I'm just I'm trying to look up here and see who some of the pitchers were during that era. Uh, again, 1945 yeah. to 1969. Yeah, Marichal, yeah, Feller. Would he would have been? Yeah, he was. Yeah, Bob Feller. I'm looking up. Well, anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, those are just some statistics and some numbers there to sort of bring home the point. Now we go to 1970 to 1990, and this was really kind of the, and I think your dad talked to me about this back in the day. This was kind of the dead ball era. You mentioned the turf the ballparks being put into play. This is when the turf fields started to permeate Major League Baseball, when, when players started to play in actual stadiums rather than where they play now today uh, in ballparks. Um, Veterans Stadium, Three Rivers Stadium, the ballpark or the stadium in Cincinnati, these multi-purpose stadiums with this AstroTurf, and and guys were kind of taught to hit the ball on the ground. And so the swing, as we knew it, sort of changed. And the statistics back that up as well. In fact, Mike Schmidt in 1981 led the league in home runs. Do you know how... I'm gonna, I'll let you take a guess. Do you know how many home runs he hit that year? 30? 31. 31. 31 yeah. home runs. That was it. Right. That was it. I mean, it's, it, it's, I mean, the home runs per game during that era, all under one, from 1970 to 1990. Not one year where it was even, wow. close, even close to one. It was all under one. Uh, the runs per game at a little over four, so 4.2. Um, most home runs hit one year was 1990, 51 home runs. That was the most home runs hit in that era for one year. It was by a power guy in Cecil Fielder. So um, it was just a a, a time where it was, I mean, again, you had guys like Ozzie Smith, Mm -hmm. uh, Carlton Fisk, George Brett, Gary Carter, George Bell, all excellent ball players, but they were taught a different style of hitting, and the game really just changed because of the the astroturf fields, among many reasons. Yeah, I mean, you say George Bell, I think George Taco Bell. Like Chris yeah. Berman ingrained that in my mind as a kid forever. Um, yes, the you know the seventies, you know nineteen nineteen sixty nine, the power numbers. I mean, right, not record breaking, but they they jumped considerably because they they lowered the mound. Uh, you know, a couple inches, right? And sure. that took away guys like, was it Denny McLean won like 
20 something games, 29 games or something yeah. that year, mm-hmm. you know, or 1968 the year before. And then there was this big power surge because now all of a sudden riding fastballs ended up, you know, sinking a little, a little bit more, or I'm sorry, not dropping as much on that angle. Yeah. And so essentially they hung and power numbers went through the roof there in 69. Uh, but then, yeah, it, 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 pitchers aren't stupid and all of a sudden the sliders came in and different arm slots came in and, and they kind of figured it out within the next couple of years and the astroturf it, it was rewarding ground balls it's just kind of the way it was like you hit a ground ball you're gonna get a hit yeah you hit a ground ball hard enough even if it hits the infield it's gonna scoop through the outfield so you're getting rewarded you, you know it's a park that's not small yeah it's probably 385 i mean cookie cutter right probably 335 down the line 385 in the gaps you know, 405, 410 in center, right? So right. a pretty good-sized park yeah. that rewards ground balls. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to get guys that maybe aren't as big and strong. We're going to get guys that are fast, yeah. right, that can move along and take advantage of those ground balls or those choppers that go through there. And, you know, we get kind of different athletes, um, you know, because of that, guys that aren't, like I said, not as big but are, you know, more of speed guys. And, Joe Morgan, I mean, he, he kind of comes to mind, you know, Joe with Ozzie Smith, Joe Morgan. I mean, that was when the middle infield. Yeah, Morgan hit some. Yeah, and, yeah, but he did hit some hit some bombs. I get the seventies would be. I, I feel like the 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 early seventies was kind of different. There was, you know, the astroturf was there, but the early seventies, you know, those guys, you know, you still had Reggie. Um, you, you you had. I mean, you're always going to have home run hitters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just. It was a different game. It was a, it was you know maybe one power threat in a lineup instead of like seven power threats and two table setters. You right, know, yeah, like yeah. like it is now. Yeah, there was only there was only one. I mean, there was one slugger. The true definition of a slugger nowadays. Right. You, you kind of I I, I don't know. I, I guess the word slugger mm-hmm. is sort of cut down a little bit because there's a lot of them. I mean, it's. There are, and they, I mean, you look at it like a Manny Machado, who's a slugger, but he's not a slugger. Yeah. You know what I mean? He just hits 30 home runs, so, right. you know, and a lot of extra base hits. You know, the 80s were, were you know, you, all of a sudden you start to get, like, McGuire yeah. and and Canseco, right, and, and the A's. That was kind of my team in the in the 80s. I loved the A's. Um, but then you had Ricky Henderson on that team, right? You had you had Dave Henderson on that team and, and guys that would, would fill the role you know, to, to get on base and to, to steal bags. So it was definitely a transitional time that started to change in the late eighties. And that's when you see when, when all of a sudden, you know, McGuire starts hitting home runs and Canseco starts hitting home runs that sets the tone for the next generation of players that want to do that. So maybe they're playing right. And there's somebody my age, that's like 10, 12 years old watching Canseco saying, this is the best dude I've ever seen. I want to hit like that. And then all of a sudden, by the time, you know, if, you know, people that were my generation, you know, they kind of make their way into the minor leagues and big leagues. Now, all of a sudden, that's where the early 2000s come in and, and power is, is all over the place. Yeah. So it, it is generational by a lot of times who the players are and how much publicity they get. You know, who do you want to be like, you know? Yeah. Um, you that's, think, who, that's who I want to be like. Do you think that era was – was it – I, I guess that era was very formidable for, I don't want to say slap hitters, but singles hitters and just pure, actually pure hitters in the game of baseball rather than, than just power, I guess all-around type hitters because of the batting averages being you know a little bit higher and the power being down. Yeah, I don't, you know, it depends if you reward them. You know, I mean, AstroTurf, it's different than turf today. It's not even close. It's concrete underneath turf right you know it's not sand underneath turf and the sands on rock underneath you know so it was a you know it was a different uh, i don't know if they were pure hitters you know i'm thinking about mechanics yeah right like you know how like you know tony gwynn like he you know he played in the, the the 90s right so gwynn to me had wonderful mechanics yeah that were much different than like uh Willie McGee, yeah, or um, even a, you know a, a, a Guillen, mm-hmm. right, or any of the White Sox. So you you also had different hitting coaches that were influential at that time, right? You had Walt Hariniak, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and you know who was kind of Charlie Lau's disciple. Mm-hmm. So Hereniak kind of took Charlie Lau's uh, more extreme, you know. And you think about the White Sox in the '80s and Guillen and, and or the '90s and, and Cora and even Robin Ventura, who was more like a George Brett, you know, even though he was right. kind of a poster boy for that, he stayed back and rotated pretty pretty darn well. Yeah. Um, but it was that was what they were trying to do. They were trying to shift all the way from their back foot to their front foot. They were finishing with one hand over their front leg. Like, I remember the swing. When you watch A-Rod swing and miss in the 90s and 2000s because he looked really bad, like, on his front foot, and he would, like, lunge into his front foot after. And it's like, I can see it. Yeah. That's what everybody looked like during that era. That's what everybody on the White Sox hit like. And a ton of people on the Red Sox looked like because that's where Herniak was, was with, with the Red Sox as well. So where Lau was, you know, um, in Chicago. So that was influential at the time, right? You have George Brett, who's the dude, and he's the poster boy for this hitting method, you know, where you're um, – I mean, just look at the book, The Art of Hitting 300, right? And you look at the pictures in there, and you're like, wow, I don't I don't really understand where that comes from. I don't remember anybody doing that. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah, They might let go with one hand, but they don't finish on their front leg, you know, like right. that showed, or roll their wrists at contact. And um, Actually, I don't think that. So that wasn't a Lao thing, roll your wrists at contact. But if you look at the book, and you'll see George Brett in positions where, like, he's flipped the barrel above his hands. Like, really weird pictures right. that – that's what kids were looking at yeah. you know that's what kids were wanting to do and that's what players would go work with you know those guys in the offseason so it bred that kind of environment where players were i want to do that if that's what george brett's doing if that's what anybody's i want to do that i do have one question kind of stupid when those this is when the astroturf fields really came into play and this is kind of the, the boom period if you will for those astroturf stadiums what kind of shoes do players wear? Were they spikes or are they actually sneakers or a special type of spike? I always wondered that, and I never, I never really found out. God, I wish I, I could remember. I'm trying to think. My dad has a, a World Series picture, you know, when he's playing in was it Riverfront, uh, where Cincinnati played, you know, in the World Series. Yeah. I don't know if it's there. I think it's in Oakland, and he has his actual shoes in the picture, and then he still has his, like, World Series gear, you know? Yeah, yeah. And those were spikes. I don't know. I mean, I remember as a kid, my dad playing in an all, uh, not an all, an old-timers game in Kansas City, and that was the first time I had ever stepped on turf. I did not have spikes on. Like, I had just some, like, old Mizuno rubber mm-hmm. turf shoes. And so I remember yeah. I, I was I was in the outfield and the balls you know bouncing like the first two fly balls bounced and went over my head. Yeah. And then I remember diving for one, and when I got up, my whole knee was bloody. Oh yeah. Like one one little dive, it just tore my pants. Tore my. I'm like, this is this stuff is nasty. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I mean, so, there was dirt in the corners of the where the bases were. Yeah. So what so what did that feel like then when you were on the turf? Uh, was uh, did it feel like you're just on concrete? No, it was bouncy. It's kind of it was just okay. It was yeah, it was real bouncy. But maybe that's why because you know the shock absorber. There 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 was some. Yeah, no, it didn't feel there. There was some cushion to it. Yeah, but it was it was bouncy. And Texas University of Texas still had that turf when I was playing in the nineties. Mm-hmm. That was my freshman year. So nine, we went down and played UT, and they still had that old turf too, which was really weird and bouncy. Yeah. And again, I don't remember what shoes I wore because I was catching. I was in the dirt. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. We definitely didn't have two pairs of shoes. Yeah. You get. I mean, you get nasty. <laughs> you know, it was like, nasty rubber I, I think too. We, yeah, we wore spikes on it. So not sure. Yeah. Good question. Well, next week we're going to discuss the. I was, you know, you look at like Tony Gwynn. It looks like he's wearing turf shoes, you know, when he played. You yeah, know, you know. So yeah. that's why I was, I was yeah. curious about that. Uh, next week we will do part two of our uh, history of hitting, where we'll talk about uh, 1990 to the present, so the last 30 years and how hitting has evolved now with new technology. Looking at some statistics and some players, of course, um, from that home run era, post strike era as well. So we're going to dive into that next week. Be sure to email us your questions at Jimbo Podcast 21 at gmail.com. Jimbo Podcast 21 at gmail.com. We do have a couple of emails. We can only get to one today. Day, and this is from JJ. Uh, it says, Jim, the podcasts are great. This question may be more suitable for future podcasts on the use of data, but I'll ask anyway. 
What does the data, and we talked about data in our first installation uh, last week. Go back and listen to that. Check it out if you haven't already. Uh, what does the data derived from Jake's use of force plates show about the difference between hitters who use a leg kick versus hitters who use a more limited stride technique. So maybe in your case, as you talk about, Jake, gaining ground. Uh, as far as force production or ground reaction force? That is a great question. Really great question. Um, yeah, we totally tested that. That was actually the first thing we tested was, let's test. So we got on the force plates, right? And we had, this was, this was a while ago. So we had the force plates and we had a golf track man. Mm-hmm. Because there was no baseball track, man. There was right. no rap soto. There was no hit tracks. But we got our hands on a golf track man system that it wouldn't read a pitch. We had to do it off a tee, sure. um, you know, from right behind. So it was actually pretty cool to, you know, kind of dive into that. But um, and then we used, I think they were called Kistler force plates. We had to have the, the scientist guy come out and like translate everything for us because it was very, very technical. Mm-hmm. But we took we took different strides. We had a a, a stride that went up and a stride that went straight down. So we didn't really gain any ground, but we did shift weight up and down. And then from that, we squished the bug, right? We pivoted on our back foot. Yeah. Okay, We spun our back foot backwards. So that one, when we did that, our weight transfer from back foot to... So the, the, the proper weight transfer is you're, you're whatever when you're in your stance, right? 50, sure. 50, 60, 40, 70, 30, doesn't matter. Then you lift your front foot up and like 98% goes into your back foot, okay? And then how much of that 98 do you transfer back into your front foot? That's essentially what we're trying to accomplish. So sure. when you had a back foot that squished the bug, instead of it transferring all the way to back to the front foot for a split second, it only transferred like 68% mm-hmm. of that energy, yeah. okay? In doing so, the bat speed went down roughly like two miles an hour, right? I'm sorry, the exit speed went down, you know, two to three miles an hour. So then we said, okay, let's stride up, let's stride down, and let's just pick our back foot off the ground. So we're not going to, like, pivot it, and we're not going to roll it in. We're just going to kind of pick it up and and spin it. So when we did that, the energy was better, but the result was not Okay, so okay. The, the players that we were testing, their exit velocity was down. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, so we had a better weight transfer, but maybe we released that ground force too soon, right? We're talking like milliseconds here. So then we did a uh, nose stride, and we said, okay, same, same uh, or I'm sorry, then we did the third scenario, which is the back foot rolls in and then up. Okay, so it rolls to the inside of the back foot, and then it comes up. So it's not a spin where it squishes, and it doesn't come off the ground and then turn. That makes sense. And then that one was that one was the best, okay, with the up-down. So then we tested it with a wide base and the no-stride. We just kind of rocked our feet, kind of like a pool hole. So we still had a weight shift, but not like a full weight shift. Um, and we did that one with those three scenarios, a back foot that squished and spun, one that just came up and then turned, and one that rolled in and then came up. So all of a sudden, the one that go, rolls in and comes up is the best. Mm-hmm. The wider base, we got a little bit more power of with a weight shift. But with the, the no stride, we still had the proper weight shift, but not as much energy, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. Not as much energy going down coming out of a stride. Okay, So we had the weight shift, 98% of the weight in the back foot to 98% in the front foot for, you know, whatever, a few milliseconds. And then that energy goes through the swing. So the winner without you know like taking an hour for this the winner was kind of a glide so then we started just testing stuff okay let's bring our foot up and out let's bring our foot back and forward so think of a glide so we're like let's try a skater drill you know what a skater drill is you know when you're 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 working your glutes right you know going back and forth jumping side to side let's kind of so we had the players do some skaters where they have to kind of like sit down into their glutes so it's kind of like a pitcher riding out their back hip as they're coming down the mound. So we, we added this little squat, kind of a little a little um, skater move, and then we had them glide with their front foot, think Christian Yelich, okay, or even Bryce Harper. We had them, so it wasn't a high stride, it was more of a glide. So we had them glide, and then we had them roll to the inside of their back foot properly, and that was our winner. Okay, so of all the, the strides, the up, straight down, okay, the no stride where we started wide had a little rock, but our front foot didn't come completely off the ground like a traditional stride. Sure. And then a stride where the foot kind of came up a little bit, and then we glided forward, 
Okay, so those were the three strides. Then we had the three back back foot movements, one that spun backwards, one that came kind of we just lifted it off the ground and turn it kind of turned in midair, which you see a lot of kids do. And then one where we planted our front foot, the back foot rolled in, then the back heel came up and off the ground. Okay, slightly. That that was by far the winner. So that's what we try to get all our players to do. Now not everybody likes a glide. Yeah. Not everybody likes a no stride. So what we do is we try to get benefits of 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 that move. So if a player doesn't want to glide it out like like a Yelich has a really far glide or a, 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 a I'm sorry, a, a Donaldson has like a really high leg kick and then gets wide. We'll kind of take with what they're comfortable with and we'll build in small elements of that glide to get them to jumpstart their swing a little bit more. Well, good stuff. Uh, be sure to email us your questions. Again, uh, Jim, we can only get to one today. JimboPodcast21 at gmail.com. JimboPodcast21 at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, the TuneIn Radio app, uh, iHeartRadio, iHeartRadio app as well. We're on Stitcher. And be sure to follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jim Tara, and Jake is at Epstein Hitting. Next week, we dive into the last 30 years of hitting in our History of Hitting Part 2, which uh, they've been, I don't want to say interesting, but uh, they've. it certainly has changed, and we've seen a spike in many statistics yeah, that, that, that'll be fun. I'm much more knowledgeable on the last uh, 20 years than I was, and, uh, you know, 100 years ago. So should be able to bring a little bit more to the table. Well, we'll talk to you next week, everybody. Stay safe. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.